It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. We ended uh, the <coughs> session eight or episode eight in the series in a rather dire uh, place. We had the betrayal of warfare, and uh, it was it was pretty dark, right? And we were. We're headed into what all the historians, I think even Alfred himself, would acknowledge in, in history as being the darkest stretch of his life. And I think that's what's going to be important about this message is how we respond to the difficult seasons of our life defines our life, truly. And if you were to recognize that these difficult seasons are like the golden opportunities that God gives us, and if you've ever uh, heard that you know, certain you know, wise businessmen will always test uh, the different young bucks that are coming wanting to work for them, they'll give like a test. My uncle, who was a very successful businessman, used to take uh, men out golfing. Uh, and he would observe them golfing. He says, you can, you can measure a man very easily when they golf. And I was really glad I never tried to work with him because I'm not a good golfer, you know, so that would have been a disaster. Uh, but it, it's in a strange way, the, the measurements, I mean, it's, if I was going to say it, I, I'd hate to think that God's measuring us because of how we golf, right? But what he would say is, watch the man as he's golfing because golf is a very frustrating game. And if the man handles that difficulty in those trials, his failures well, with a smile and a grin, with a nod like, yeah, I can do better, uh, or if he throws down his uh, club and you know, kicks the tree, you know that he doesn't handle his difficulties well. And in a sense, you almost get the idea in Scripture that God is going to give us opportunities to prove that we're ready to be entrusted with more responsibility. And those times that we're given as the test aren't the easy times. They're the hard times. It's the times we're going to get uh, the swamp forest or fortress. We're going to get this one time of our life which is challenging, and that's the measurement of if we're ready to be entrusted with more. How are you handling the, this amazing opportunity I'm giving you right now to prove that you are ready? And so for Alfred, this is going to be a very, very challenging stretch. And it's a famous time in, in, in British history, this couple month period, uh, which is what I'm calling the Saxon Swamp Fortress, uh, but it's called the Isle of Athelney uh, to a lot of people, is a very, very unique period of time where there's a lot of lore that surrounds it, a lot of stories that came out over uh, the hundreds of years afterwards even, where people would, I, I think, my guess is they just made up stories uh, and just started telling them, you know, like Alfred was a minstrel and a, a juggler, and he went into the, the Viking camp during this time and entertained them, and meanwhile spied on all the things that they were doing. And I don't know that that happened, but it's an intriguing story, right? And so they have a lot of these stories that come out of this time, but for me, in the raw sense of this story, I've been here. I've been on the Isle of Athelney. I've been in this waste place, this place where it seems like I've been abandoned. I've had, uh, you know, when you're going through a very difficult time, it's interesting, but a lot of the people that can even be close to you will sort of distance themselves from you, lest the disease that came upon you might come upon them. It's sort of a Job feature to life. You know, when Job is going through what he's going through, people are like, I don't want to go, where the lightning is striking, I don't want to stand near that. 
And so as a result, you're going to see him alone. And it's a proving period for this man. And it's actually what it is. Job is like, the heavens are leaning in. God's saying, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan's like, let me touch him. I guarantee you, he's going to He's going to you know, curse you if, if you remove that boundary of protection about him. And God says, okay, give it your best. He will not. And sure enough, Job is not going to curse God. God's going to win the bet if you want to say it that way. But wow, Job's going to go through quite the testing and the proving in the process. And so in this process for us, could you imagine? It's like, I believe that my child is ready to carry more weight. And so it's like, and the devil says, I doubt it. And it's like, hey, We'll take him to the Isle of Athelney and we'll see. We'll see what makes him tick. And that's what this is. This is the Saxon Swamp Fortress. And this is something in each of our lives that we walk through, but how we walk through it is very, very important. The darkest hour. So in British history, that's actually a phrase and it's interesting because the person I'm going to quote is the one that that phrase usually goes with, and that's Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill is going to enter uh, World War II uh, at the darkest hour is when he is going to be made prime minister. And so it's just interesting uh, that I would have quotes from him on this talking about Alfred. But the subtitle I have for this is The Gift of Trial No One Seems to Want. We don't want this trial. If you ask any of us on the human level of our life, remember there's two sides to our life. There's a firstborn side to our life, and there's this side that Christ has given birth to, this new, this second creature. And the firstborn side of our life does not want difficulty, does not want trial, but the second side, it's not that it's craving trial, but it's craving Jesus. It's craving more of him. And so as a result, it's willing to say, whatever you need to do, Lord, I want. And that's, you see that in Christ, not my will, but thine. And that's a very, very important dimension that needs to be cultivated within us. And so the darkest hour, the gift of trial, no one seems to want. I mean, God's given out these great trials, I mean, that would really strengthen us. It's like this great weight set. It's like, hey, I have a free weight set for whoever wants it. It's like, hey, I want that weight set. I could get strong out of that weight set. That's what this is. This is like a free gymnasium. And it will get you fit. It will, it will build you strong. Well, I don't know that I want that. That could come with pain. Sure, getting in shape comes with pain. And yet it also comes with strength, a greater strength. Isn't that what we want? So here's Winston Churchill speaking about this little season of Alfred's life. In January 878 occurred the most surprising reversal of Alfred's fortunes. This is what we've already gone through, but we're going to sort of catch up to speed here. His headquarters and court lay in Chippenham in Wiltshire. It was twelfth night, and the Saxons, who in these days of torment refreshed and fortified themselves by celebrating the feasts of the church, were off their guard, engaged in pious exercises, or perhaps even drunk. Now, we don't know that, but remember the wassail that they were drinking on twelfth night? So we don't know, but obviously they were unready for the Vikings to attack. Down swept the ravaging foe. The whole army of Wessex, sole guarantee of England south of the Thames, was dashed into confusion. Many were killed. The most part stole away to their houses. A strong contingent fled overseas. Refugees arrived with futile appeals at the court of France. Only a handful of officers and personal attendants hid themselves with Alfred in the marshes and forests of Somerset and the Isle of Athelney, which rose from the quags. Don't you love how the Brits speak? 
Quags are like marshy areas, and so, I mean, it's a really fun. I almost named this something about the quags just because I wanted to use the word. Something like the quags of difficulty or something like that, but I didn't. This was the darkest hour of Alfred's fortunes. I thought it was fun just to have a quote from Winston Churchill that uses the phrase that is so associated with his life, the darkest hour. And so in British history, there's been many of these moments of the darkest hour, and I have to admit, Winston Churchill's darkest hour is even worse than this one. Uh, it is really a great story. And I don't know how many of you have ever studied the darkest hour uh, from World War II, but uh, May 10th, 1940, the Germans are going to break from what's called the Twilight War. See, we're going to enter into World War II in uh, September of 1939 with the invasion of Poland, Germans' invasion of Poland. And, but from that point forward, it's sort of what's called a twilight war. There's really no skirmishes. I mean, there are, but they're very limited. So it's really not a war. And everyone's just sort of waiting on what's going to happen. And meanwhile, the British uh, Parliament is recognizing that Neville Chamberlain's really blown it. And he's, he needs to be out. But who could possibly unify a very fractured uh, Great Britain? And so Neville Chamberlain's going to tag... Winston Churchill, who's not necessarily the most popular guy. However, he was the one who's clearly stood against Hitler the entire time, and the people want him. And so Winston Churchill gets the opportunity that no one wants, and that is to be the prime minister of Great Britain in the darkest hour. So what is happening on the very day that he is being tagged for prime minister is Germany is sweeping into Belgium, Holland, and France. And so there's 300,000 of uh, Great Britain's finest. In fact, it's 70% of their military force is going to suddenly find themselves surrounded on the beaches of Dunkirk. And so if you've ever heard of the word Dunkirk, that's exactly what's going to happen. So this is almost all of Winston Churchill's strength is stuck and is, I mean, basically for all practical purposes, dead. There is no way that they can get him out. And there, there's just no possible way. And to try and rescue them from the shores across the English Channel with the unsteady waters of the English Channel, that many men, it's like it, it, all the Germans have to do is bomb them. And it's just like, how are you supposed to do this? And so Winston Churchill is going to call a national day of prayer. And God is going to do something so supernatural. I don't even know that I want to give away the story. I mean, it is so good what is going to happen. Uh, but it is the darkest hour, and it's going to prove this man known as Winston. And Winston Churchill is going to lead his nation through what seems impossible, just like in the Alfred the Great story, and then suddenly to a place of triumph. I mean, it's an amazing story, which is why I'm so attracted to it. This was the darkest hour of Alfred's fortunes. So Asser, who's a bishop who actually followed Alfred around and witnessed everything, he is going to write the biography of uh, Alfred after Alfred dies. And this is what he says. He led with thanes and vassals an unquiet life in great tribulation, for he had nothing wherewith to supply his wants except what infrequent sallies he could seize either stealthily or openly, both from the heathen and from the Christians who had submitted to their rule. So a sally like a, a foray, I'm trying to get a good word, an attack on a small area to get some food. Uh, so they're going to send out small armed forces to try and get food. That was the only way he could eat. Uh, and so this is a pretty desperate situation. His nation has been taken from him. Do you guys remember Guthrum? 
Guthrum, the evil Guthrum, has taken over and is basically sitting on his throne. And so this is just a hard season in every regard uh, for Alfred. I love this quote from Winston Churchill. Alfred lived as Robin Hood in Sherwood Forest long afterwards. So before there was Robin Hood, who was having to go out on these sallies and foraging expeditions to, to get food to survive because he was an outlaw, well, you have Alfred doing the exact same thing. So that gives you sort of a mental picture that's fun. The leaders of the Danish army felt sure at this time that mastery was in their hands. To the people of Wessex, it seemed that all was over. Their forces were dispersed, the country overrun, their king, if alive, was a fugitive in hiding. So it's not just Alfred, it's the people of Wessex that feel that, that sense of it's over. I've had a lot of moments in my life where it seemed impossible for something good to actually occur out of what was taking place. And we've had multiple moments in Ellerslie, ones that I'm not exactly sure, even at the spur of the moment, I could share, because they involve a lot of people. But moments where it seemed like there was no possible way this could continue. And I mean, I think it'd be shocking to you to know how many of those moments there have been. But I've been on the Isle of Athelney many times in an impossible place where I've had to make a decision in my soul. Am I going to give in to the the situation and just forsake hope, or am I going to cling to God? Am I going to be a believer in this moment? And you're going to see uh, Alfred going through a similar thing. He is going to receive this first and foremost as a correction from God. He believes, he's remembering back to a sermon that he heard right when he's first uh, running for his life. And he, he's remembering the, the, the words that the Lord chastens those he loves. And so he's, he's receiving it, saying, God, you do whatever work you need to do in me so I can be useful. But he never lets go of the hope. He knows that this is his kingdom. He knows he has a job. And even though he can't for the life of him figure out how to get out of this situation, how are you supposed to take back a nation when you can't communicate with your people, when you can't communicate with your soldiers? How does he do this? And that's not going to be in this session, even though that's, uh, that's the next one. <clears throat> So this is mainly what I want to focus on today. It's a biblical truth that I think can change your life. The mathematics of the difficult place. When you get into a difficult place, the grace of God kicks in at a whole other level in your life. You see, the reason why we're supposed to rejoice when we face trials of many kinds is because in those, that place of trial is something that we don't get when we're not in the place of trial. You see, when we're in a place of trial, we have access to something. It's like the gate valve opens up and the flood of grace can begin to enter. And by the way, grace is a very, very good thing. And I, I remember uh, Jackie Pullinger coming back to the United States. She, she, she worked in the walled city of Hong Kong for, I don't want to say 50 years or so. And she worked with the worst uh, cases in the world. This is like such a dark place on earth. Even the police wouldn't go into the walled city of Hong Kong. And Jackie Pollinger lived in the walled city of Hong Kong with uh, some of the, the basest, lowest people on earth. And she came back uh, to the United States and was really struggling seeing our prosperity and seeing how fat the church was and how unhealthy it was after she had lived on the front lines for so long. So she was you know, having to temper what she was saying. 
But one of the statements she said was, you may have your own bed, but I know God's grace. See, every night she would have these heroin addicts, these women that would come in and they would oftentimes be sleeping on her own bed. And so she didn't even have her own bed. She says, you may have your own bed, but I know God's grace. And even when she said that, I remember pausing going, why does she make that sound like she has something better? Because I sure do like having my own bed, <laughs> and I don't know that I want her situation, but she seems to almost be bragging. Like, okay, Eric has his own bed, but she knows God's grace. God, I need to know more about that. That was actually the quote that started a pursuit in my life to say, is it better to have God's grace than ease in this life? Because that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. God's grace doesn't sound that impressive, right? But with the way she said it, she made it sound like she had something better than I had. And in a sense, those of you that have had a more difficult road to walk, you can say the same thing. You may have a healthy family that you came from, but I know God's grace. And the person that with a healthy family is sort of like, wait a minute, wait a minute, what, what do you mean by that? You see, each of us is given places of weakness so that we can know the grace of God. And where you have a place of strength, guess what? Like, for instance, I have a healthy family that I came from. That was the grace of God to me, the way God intended things to work. God intended me to have a healthy father, and that's one of the reasons I am who I am, and that was the grace of God through me, to me. However, for those that don't have that, did you know that they have something even greater? They have the grace of God, and that's what I want to talk about. This is called the mathematics of the difficult place. Jesus is going to make a statement. There it is on the screen. How is it you do not understand? And you know what the context is? This. It's like here we are in a, in a difficult place, and he's looking at us going, how is it that you don't understand? Have you not figured it out yet that this is good, that the difficult place you're in right now is actually a good place? Don't you realize how this works? Don't you understand the mathematics of the difficult place? And we're like, no, not quite. Eric hasn't taught me the lesson yet. So here's the quote, Mark 8, 21. He's, so he said to them, how is it you do not understand? So let me give you the context for that. Uh, before we get into this context, there's two things you need to know that will really help with this context. And that is Jesus has uh, had two different situations where he has marveled the crowds. Two situations of great need where Jesus has come through and proven himself to be something very special, right? The first one is 5,000 men, not including women and children in the count, that are all hungry and in need of food. And all that is available are five loaves of bread, okay? Now, I'm not going to mention fish because in this context, Jesus isn't going to talk a lot about the fish. He's going to talk about the bread. And then another situation where there were 4,000 men, not including women and children, and they had seven loaves of bread to feed the whole thing, okay? That's, that is so preposterous to think of feeding 5,000 men plus women and children with five loaves of bread, okay? That is, that is ridiculous. That's, that's impossible. That's right. It is impossible. And yet, this is the mathematics of the difficult place. And here we are in Mark 8, 13 through 21. And he left them, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. Oh, no. And they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned amongst themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. 
But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said to him, 12. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? Now, what's funny is I just told you the story. I even gave you the context. And I could say to all of you, how is it that you do not yet understand? You're like, I have no idea what he's talking about. (laughs) That would be a normal response. It's like he's speaking in riddles almost to our soul. And so he could say, how many baskets did you take up? Twelve. And you're thinking, what does that have to do with anything? How many baskets did you take up there? Seven. But what, what? And he said, do you not understand? Are you still so hard of heart that you don't see it? We're like, maybe. I don't know. I don't know that I'm seeing it. The mathematics of the difficult place. So the mathematics of the difficult place. Now, I'm using today's date, tomorrow's date, and the day after. Okay, so... I have no idea what the dates were when this took place, but I want to give you sort of an illustration. Let's imagine that on July 2nd, today, you have no need of food. We have no need of a miracle. We have food. We have provision. And guess what? That's good. There's nothing wrong with that. And when we receive our food today, what are we going to do? We're going to thank him. We're going to thank him for his provision because he has given us grace in and through the provision of food. Praise God. We have grace. On July 3rd, imagine that there's 5,000 men in need of food, plus women and children, and we have an issue. We have a shortage, and all we have is five loaves of bread. Okay, that's that's a tough situation. Mathematically, you try and do the computing on that one, okay? It's not going to work. We're each going to have a little half crumb. July 4th, there's 4,000 men plus women and children in need of food. Now, I want you to think this through. On July 2nd, we have everything we need to supply the food. There's no need, okay? So I want you to imagine how many leftovers we're going to have. Okay, now on July 3rd, we have 5,000 men, and we only have five loaves. So the need is greater than even on July 4th, which is 4,000 men, and we have seven loaves. To the degree that there is need, you're going to recognize the supernatural fluctuations, okay? So this is the mathematics of the difficult place. July 2nd, we have no need, but we also have no leftovers. There's no bonus there. On July 3rd, we have 5,000 men and women and children, well, plus women and children to feed. We only have five loaves, but look at the leftovers. There's 12 baskets of leftovers. So the greater the need, the greater the supply, and the greater the bonus package that comes along. On July 4th, 4,000 men plus women and children in need of food, and we, we have seven loaves. Seven loaves is more than five loaves the day before. 4,000 is less than 5,000, and guess what? We have less leftovers. In other words, to the degree that you have need, God will meet it. And the greater the challenge, the greater the grace. You guys see it? Do you not yet understand, says Jesus? Do you not see that the greater the challenge, the greater the grace? Do you not realize that right now you guys forgot bread and I'm not upset with you? Don't you realize who is with you? The greater the need, 
the greater the grace. Mark 8, uh, 17 through 18, then verse 21. Why do you reason because you have no? And I took out bread there, and I put an empty place for you to fill it in. Because in each of our lives, we might be lacking something. Okay, as we've been talking about fatherhood, I guarantee you there's certain people in here that feel a trigger to say, but I don't have that. I don't have that father in my life that has been able to do this or that. Okay, for some it could be financial. For some it could be health. I don't have the physical strength that this person has. And so as a result, there's a point of need that is created. Why do you reason because you have no Okay, you, you have to fill in the blank. You could put bread in, if, but that, in, in America, that is not the most normal thing for us to put in, right? Our place of need is usually not bread. It is usually something else, but the principle, the mathematics of the difficult place work the same. Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? How is it you do not understand? Don't you realize that in the kingdom of heaven, your vulnerability, your weakness, your lack is God's place of strength? Do you not understand that where you are weak, God will make you strong? That this is the great secret of how Christianity works? So the gap fill principle. He makes up the difference and more. So we have a walled city. And a walled city is only as good as it is a completely walled city. It doesn't do you any good if you have a big gap in the wall of the walled city because the enemy is going to come racing right through that gap. It doesn't matter if the rest of the walls are good. And many of us have a point of weakness, a point where the enemy could take us down or could take us out. But Jesus is the one that fills in the gap. And that's what the gap fill principle is. He makes up the difference and more. So if you were raised in a family that was a little mm, unstable, uh, that didn't actually supply you with the care, with the provision that you would typically need as a child, that's a gap, okay? That's a vulnerability where the enemy can play upon that. And as many of you could attest, he has. And yet, that point of weakness, when you come to Christ, is a place where God wants to meet you. And he wants to actually fill that in. Now look at the, the point. He makes up the difference, comma, and more. So if you were to take someone that has a father and a healthy situation, God has expressed grace in and through that. However, if you take someone that doesn't have a father, God wants to not just make up the difference, but more. To the point that if we were to be able to step back and look at it, we would all agree the person that didn't have the father actually is getting something greater. Even though they didn't get the initial grace of a father, they're getting something beyond that is hard to understand unless you understand the kingdom of heaven and the mathematics of the difficult place. Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by, Jesus, by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. See, this is the mathematics of the difficult place right here. Jesus is going to come into that place and he is going to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. Because what is the typical thing? God, could you just make me like the person that has a father? 
a normal father. I, I would just be happy to have even just a piece of that, just the scraps off the table of that concept. And yet what God is going to do is come in and do exceedingly abundantly beyond all of that. In other words, there is something that God designed us for. And it's healthy, it's whole. You know, if we talk about a healthy marriage, if we talk about a healthy family, if we talk about a healthy upbringing, if we talk about a healthy impartation of training in the, in the, in the word of God. Okay, there's a way that God intended it. But to the degree that the enemy has attempted to ravage that, to the degree that the enemy has come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. To the degree that the enemy has come into compromise, God will take what the enemy has meant for evil and he will turn it, do a judo flip on it and turn it for good. I just explained to you how the kingdom of heaven works, which is why we smile at trials. We recognize that when we are weakened, God's grace floods into such a situation. And as a Christian, if you could get something, you want more grace. So as a result, those times of weakness, those trials, actually are the channels through which you can receive grace. What the devil wants to convince you of is that he wants to say, oh, poor you. Self-pity closes off grace. It is the number one enemy of what the kingdom of God wants to do inside of you. When you become the victim, you close off his victory. And as a result, it is critical that when we are even victimized, we never become the victim. We are always in Christ and always rejoicing, knowing that God will take even this and turn it into triumph. The There's just a few illustrations. The wedding at Cana. Okay, so this is a young bride. Poor thing. Uh, I mean, there, this is a lot of pressure. In the Jewish culture, they just have... Just these, these traditions, and there's certain ways that you're going to show that you are a family of substance, and their wine runs out. And so Jesus is invited to the wedding, and what does he do? He doesn't just make up the difference. What does he do? He actually shocks everyone, where the better wine comes out afterwards, and they have a super abundance of it. It's like, huh, we all might want to run out of wine at our wedding and have Jesus show up. And that's actually the point. When Jesus shows up, it goes above and beyond. See, there is a way that we can naturally do things in our natural man ability, and it's not that it's wrong. It's just that when we experience weakness, it creates a dependence upon God to intervene. We want that. Dependence and weakness is not an evil. It can actually be leveraged by God to be a great strength in our life. So, the wedding at Cana, he doesn't just meet the need, but he goes exceedingly abundantly beyond. The barrenness of Hannah. Hannah ha is carrying around shame because she doesn't have a child. And so just the embarrassment. Uh, there's an, another wife uh, that, of course, has children. And you know, there's that challenge that is constantly there for this, this woman. Again, we're dealing with Jewish culture stuff where the shame of not having children is very heavy upon her. She turns to God in this weakness, in this point of need. God doesn't just meet the need, but he goes exceedingly abundantly beyond. What does he do? We have a leader of Israel. Samuel is the result. And so what you see is that out of that point of weakness comes forth actually a bigger blessing than if she just had a, a, a child like everyone else would have. 
Instead, she ends up with a hero that is going to change the course of the nation. The widow at Zarephath. So the widow at Zarephath, talk about a rough situation. Uh, She has, in the midst of a drought, she has a young son. She doesn't have any food left. And God is going to command her to give the last bit of food that she has to the prophet Elijah. But the prophet Elijah says, if you entrust that to me, your oil and your flour will never run out. You know how big of a decision that is? Are you willing to allow weakness into your life, even a greater weakness than you're currently experiencing, so that God can reveal his grace to you? See, he doesn't just meet the need, but he goes exceedingly abundantly beyond. And even when her son dies, Elijah raises him from the dead. It's like, this, this lady is getting a pretty good package here. Uh, she's getting something pretty special. Even though her situation would be the type of thing that could easily lead to a little self-pity. You'd have to imagine that. I'm in a drought. I have a young boy. I have nothing, no one to care for me, no husband to provide for me. I live in this culture which prohibits a woman from being able to do almost anything. And I'm totally dependent. And God says, I know. But I'm here. You see, that is... In each of these stories, you have the wedding, you have a young bride, widow, uh, I'm sorry, the, Hannah, the baroness of Hannah, you have a, a young mother uh, or a, a desirous mother, and then you have a widow. And God is going to use these symbols as a picture. The frig- he, he has a heart for the fragile. He has a heart for the weaker vessel, which by the way, isn't just the women in here, it's us, the bride of Christ. We are the fragile vessel that needs a hero to come along and help us. The father to the fatherless. Where there is something missing, he makes up the difference and more. Psalm 68, four through six. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity. You feel bound? Alfred is bound on the Isle of Athelney. Those that are bound, he brings out of that bondage. See, God specializes in solving our riddles if we will entrust them to him, if we will entrust our fatherlessness to him. The other side of that is the defender of widows. What is a widow? It's a, a widow is one who does not have a defender, does not have a protector, does not have a nurturer. She does not have that husband character in her life. So if you're missing that, that dimension, Guess what? He makes it up. And so what you see is the gap filler right here. So here's the FTTF principle, the father of the fatherless uh, principle. He is a father to someone that is missing that father protection, that father nurturing, that father presence, and that father supply. He is a husband to someone that is missing that husband care, that husband closeness, that husband protectiveness. He is a provider to those that are without food, without financial sustenance, without practical strength to carry out their assignment. He is a healer to those that are emotionally and spiritually injured without bodily strength or ability and without mental clarity. If in any way we have empty pockets, he is the filler of empty pockets. So to the degree that you have emptiness, to you have need, he is the filler of those empty pockets. This is what he specializes in. This is one of his chief attributes as a savior. This is what he does. We don't have righteousness of our own, so what does he do? He supplies it with abundance. How did we get it? Not through the sacrificing of rams and bulls and goats, 
but through the sacrifice of his own life? Talk about and more. He is going to come and give us his very best robe. He is going to kill the fattened calf. That's him. He is going to give us the very best. He's going to treat us as royalty, though we do not deserve it. He gives us his best. So the word in Scripture for this is consolation. Now the problem is in our culture, North American culture, if you get a consolation prize, that isn't, that, that's like almost like a pat on the back saying, I'm glad you participated. And so if you get a consolation prize or ribbon, it's like somewhat embarrassing, okay? It's like, so what did you win? Did you take first, second, or third place? No, I got a consolation ribbon. And, you know, even your parents will go, oh, okay, maybe better, uh, maybe you could do better next time, right? It's just like, that's terrible. However, in Scripture, the word consolation is not a demotion. It's not a bad thing. It is a beautiful thing, okay? So we need to just reset our terminology here. This is the reward that you get in and through your suffering. This is the reward. Jesus is going to get a great consolation in and through what he is going to suffer. But so do we as the saints of God. When we suffer, something comes back towards us when we suffer for doing that which is right. Because there's two ways to suffer. You can suffer as a criminal for that which is wrong, and there's no consolation in that. That's misery. Or you could suffer for doing that which is right for Christ's sake. And as a result, you get something known as this. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. So I want you to imagine, even that, situa- that statement right there, he comforts us in all our tribulation. So a, tribula- a tribular is a threshing instrument. So if you're like trying to remove the chaff from wheat, you hit it with a tribular. And that is going to separate the, the inner, inner pith from the outer chaff. And so it's actually a good thing that is happening. This thing called tribulation is technically not supposed to be a negative thing. It's supposed to be the removing of husks, the removing of what is unneeded. However, when you face these pruning periods of time, he is the God of all comfort in it. So he comes in with his grace, just like we're saying. He overcompensates for our need that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. There's our word, consolation. So as sufferings enter, well, guess what? So does consolation. So to the degree that we have trial, we have consolation. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also will you, you will partake of the consolation. And that's supposed to encourage the church at Corinth to hear that they have a consolation. Even though they have sufferings, they have a consolation. Now most of us are like, I'm fine without the consolation, just take away the suffering. What we don't realize is that the consolation is greater. It's better to have the consolation than not having the suffering. Many of us would say, I would much rather just not have suffering. But if you understood the consolation, you'd say, I'll take the suffering because I know I get the consolation. I will gladly, the reason many of us as athletes will go in and train hard and have sweat and difficulty and all sorts of agony in our body is because we are trading it out for something greater called physical strength and energy. And so as a result, we know that this pain is short term, but it gains something far greater. 
And as a result, we evaluate and we say, I understand, Lord, what you're saying, the mathematics of the difficult place. I experience a little difficulty here, and I get a great amount of benefit here. All right, I will rejoice in the little bit of difficulty here. So paraklesis is the consolation. That's our Greek word for consolation. This is what it means. Help and support that is very near and very ready to supply strength. Intimate aid, heart-level encouragement, the supply of deep comfort. Isn't that just a beautiful uh, statement? So that's what God is bringing. It's like to the degree that you face trial, you are going to encounter the presence of God, the supply of God at a very intimate level that is so much better than not having the need in the first place. It's like when you taste this, you're like, God, how do I get this? I remember this one trial I was going through for multiple years, and God was teaching me long-suffering instead of suffering. I was learning how to go through something for a long period of time. And I didn't ever think about that, you know, the word long added to suffering. (laughs) Until I went through this, it's like, wow, God, this doesn't end. And I almost felt like in the conversation that I had with God that day, it was sort of like, Eric, do you want it to end? Well, why are you asking, God? Because yes would be my immediate answer. He says, Eric, you know this intimacy you have with me right now because of this? If the trial ends, you lose that dimension that you currently have. That is a result, that closeness, that intimacy in this season is a result of you being so dependent because of this thorn that you have. And I remember in my mind actually saying, Lord, I choose the difficulty. I wouldn't want it to be removed one second before you would want it removed. I want everything that you have to give me. That's, that's me staring at the situation with extreme challenge in my life, saying I receive the challenge and I allow the challenge to continue without complaint because I know it is producing that deep connectedness with you right now. I choose that over not having the pain. And that's saying something about that deep connectedness with Christ. It is that special. So look at this word that I just did, paraklesis. That's consolation. Now look at another word, which is the Holy Spirit, parakletos. Okay? Uh, isn't that interesting? So what it, obviously you're going to notice the two correlate. So let me just describe this. Parakletos is the Holy Spirit. It is the one who is the helper. He's the comforter. He's the one who, he's the consoler, if you will, the one who brings the consolation. So he's the very present help in times of trouble. He's the very ready supply of strength. He's the intimate aid of the Father, the one who delivers the heart level encouragement, the one who supplies the deep comfort. So let's just focus on the truth here. The degree, of, the degree of consolation always outweighs the degree of suffering. So no matter the degree of suffering, the degree of consolation will always prove greater. Always. Do you not understand the mathematics of the difficult place? So that when you enter into the difficult place, you smile and you're like, thank you, Lord, because in this difficult place, I have you. Could you imagine if you actually thought this way? Imagine how much lighter your life could be as opposed to allowing the devil to grind you to dust, which is what he's a very good, uh, he's very good at doing that because we don't understand the mathematics. We start complaining about the fact that we forgot our bread instead of recognizing that this need is yet another opportunity for God to show himself strong. 
So when we find ourselves on the marshy island of Athelney, let's cherish the fact that this place of difficulty, when embraced with faith, will undoubtedly turn into a place of strength. So Athelney, though it is a place of great trauma to Alfred, there is nothing in any of our lives that would even want this for the storyline. That's what's interesting. We're like, go Alfred, take on these Vikings. Oh no, Guthrum just snuck in on you know, Twelfth Night and oh no, uh, Wolfair just betrayed him. This is terrible. And yet Alfred is going to be Alfred the Great because of what takes place in these few months on Athelney. This is when the great man is made, right here. It's not before this, it's here. It's in the difficult place that he is going to be made into a man that will go down in history as the great. Isn't that an amazing statement? Most of us want to skip this in our life. It's like, God, couldn't we just defeat Guthrum when he comes in and then rise up and push them off the island and go, yay! Instead, God will allow oftentimes for us to have a season on a marshy island so that he could prove us and test what makes us who we are. Why are you doing this? What is this for? Who do you trust in? Do you believe I am enough? Oh God, this is hard. Could you remove this thorn from me? As long as you have that thorn, you have my grace. So will you receive it for now? Will you allow my grace to prove sufficient to you in this time? In due time, I will remove the thorn, but I need to do something in you right now. The Swamp Fortress, an unexpected gift. I don't know how many of you have had a Swamp Fortress uh, in your life. Uh, The guy talking to you is very, very familiar with what we're talking about here. And I'm... I would say the reason this message is so clear for me and the reason I can speak it with such strength is because I know it. I've tasted it. I know that the consolation is greater than the pain. So Dr. Benjamin Merkel is going to uh, share a story about the season on Athelney. There's a lot of stories that I'm not actually covering because to go into all these fables really, I don't think, edifies anyone. It doesn't accomplish anything. But this is a fascinating story that's going to come out because even the English recognize this is when Alfred was made great. So as a result, in their lore and in their history, they're going to recognize that an Isle of Athelney is actually a springboard unto greatness. Isn't that interesting? And so the fact that it's woven into this man's story is almost a help for us to recognize that it's supposed to be woven into all of our stories. William of Malmesbury, the early 12th century historian, described Athelney as an island, though not an island of the sea. A scarce two acres of dry land rose up out of the marshy surrounds, but it was more than enough space to support the exiled king and his band of followers. With their stags, goats, and other wild beasts, these two wooded acres soon became Alfred's swampy fortress, a mead hall of the marshes and moors. Isn't that cool with what you know right now? It's a mead hall of the marshes and moors. So he's gonna take that mead table, he's gonna take all of that, and he's gonna move it to this secluded place, and he's only gonna have a small band around him, and this is going to be that proving ground. Very difficult season for him. I almost named this message the power of empty pockets because that's what the truth is. It's sort of like the truth woven into the title. When you have empty pockets, when you don't have anything, you have God's economy backing you up. And I have been in that place so many times where I do not have what I need. 
You see, if you run an organization, you understand cash flow, and you recognize that cash flow can uh, be very, very important. In other words, you may have you know, a lot of money coming in next month, but that doesn't mean a lot if you have to pay a lot of money this month. And so you have to have enough money in the bank to survive until that next month when you would have money. And this is just, you know, what it's like. It's, it's a unique challenge, and you have to learn how to walk through that with wisdom at every turn. And so out of a four-year period here at Ellerslie, we had, so that's 48 months, and I'm going to give an educated guess that we had around 38 or 39 of those months that we did not have the money to pay payroll on the first of the month as we were closing to the end of the month. That is a lot of challenge in a four-year period. And, but every single month, we had what we needed. Okay, so that's, that's just a, a general overview statement to say God has always proven supernaturally strong on our behalf. But the stories that are woven into that are just extraordinary because each month he has to solve something. Each month he has to come up with, and he never does the same thing twice. And so I still remember this one situation where we were $30,000 short. It costs a lot to do all this. Uh, and so 30000 actually isn't that much in, in our world here, but it still is a lot. And so we were $30,000 short, and I knew we had to, if we were to receive a check, I have to get it in, and then it takes a day to clear at least, right? So we need 30000 and the day passes, and we don't get 30000 which means it's the day of the need which means the only way we can do it now is if we got cash. And this is the strangest thing, but we have a guy that drives up from Denver and hands us $30,000 cash. Who does that? <laughs> so one of the most obscure stories. But this is like my tale to tell. I have so many stories that I could tell to just say, any questions? Eric, are you still hard of heart? Do your eyes not see? Do you not yet understand? God, I think I'm starting to understand. I think I'm starting to understand that when I'm weak, you are strong. And he's like, you're getting it. You're getting it. Do you understand it? Do you understand that when you're weak, he is strong? The power of empty pockets, how we handle our most difficult moments defines everything. So here's the story from Dr. Merkel about the uh, season on Athol. This is very fascinating. In one account, as the king's men went out to fish one afternoon, the king and his wife stayed behind with a servant in their small dwelling on Athelney. A pilgrim came and begged bread of the king, who sent the servant to see how much food they had to spare. The servant returned to say that the family only had one loaf of bread and a bit of wine. Alfred immediately commanded that half of the loaf and half of the wine be given to the beggar, who took the gifts with gratitude. Of course, it was discovered later that the loaf of bread and the bit of wine had not been diminished at all despite having been shared. That afternoon, the fishing party returned with a miraculously bountiful catch. But the greatest surprise came last, that, that night when St. Cuthbert, the great saint of Lindisfarne, appeared to Alfred to reveal that he had been the wandering pilgrim who had taken Alfred's bread and wine. Because of Alfred's generosity, Cuthbert would be the king's shield and friend and would watch over Alfred from then on. Cuthbert also gave Alfred a prophecy of his upcoming victory over the Danes, as well as the promise that Alfred would soon be the king of all Britain. So what, to what degree that is legend and what degree it is fact, I don't know. But isn't it fascinating that that's the story that passes down through history, that how you handle your Isle of Athelney is going to define your entire history from this point forward. For all practical purposes, most men would have given up. 
Most men would have fled the country. Almost every other king that had still survived in all of this island of Britain had left long ago. Burgred is going to flee. So the king of Mercia, he's out of there. And so if you could get out with your life, that was a pretty big deal. Alfred refuses to leave. In fact, as I will go into on Monday, he chooses the most difficult spot in the country to stay. It's right where Guthrum is. Why would he do that? There are other places where the Vikings aren't in Wessex. Instead, he chooses to be right in the center of it because he wants to plague Guthrum. He is not leaving. He is going to take back his kingdom, and he wants Guthrum to know it. It's like you have to give a wink and a smile to that. It's like, okay, whatever that is, I think we could use a bit of that in us as the church of Jesus Christ. Father, we need to understand this just as the disciples needed to understand it. We need to know the mathematics of the difficult place. We need to understand the principle of the father to the fatherless. Lord, that to the degree that we have empty pockets, you are the one that fills those pockets. So Lord, we rejoice right now in whatever area of our life we are lacking, for that is your territory to redeem, to prove faithful in. Lord, and we thank you for this amazing principle, and we love you. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we declare this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.